This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So pleased you can be with us. If you are new to 88.7, typically Tuesdays at 11, we're here in the studio live to take people's questions. Maybe it's an issue you're studying God's Word on. You're not certain how to understand or apply the text or a challenge in your life or family or ministry or church. Well, if we can help by God's grace, we will. Again, the number here locally, the 843 South Carolina Exchange it's 525-1859. You can also uh, text us, email us here directly into the studio. The Actually, the email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. So you can email us. And if you call, we're happy to put you on the air live. Uh, we do always give preference to live callers, though, indeed. Um, many people are a little hesitant to do that, and they dictate their question and we're happy to receive it that way as well. So it's a great day here in the South in August, and we're live here in the studio this morning. If you want to call us again, 843-525-1859. Rick, I think we've had many questions already have come in, so let's go ahead and we'll get started and we'll do our best to respond. All right, Pastor, very good. We have a listener from Georgia who has a relative that was asking her, well, actually, I think we've got a a live caller. We always, as you said, give preference to live callers, so let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Uh, Yes, I was going to uh, just see what your opinion is and uh, how much you're concerned with the the MAGA world kind of infiltrating the uh, evangelical church and their allegiance to Donald Trump and which I think is almost the antithesis of Jesus and Jesus' teachings. I would just like to know your opinion of this whole movement. No, it's a it's a fair question, and um, many people, you know, reacted to J- Donald Trump negatively. I would say most evangelicals responded to him fairly positively. Uh, what's our responsibility as Christians? That's really the fundamental issue you have to ask and answer. Well, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount told us that we have a responsibility to be witnesses for him. And so when it intersects in the political realm, which it does in our particular form of government, not everywhere in the world, then we should be salt and light there. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Certainly, our hope as believers is not in the political systems of this world because ultimately they are all destined to fail. But our responsibility 
is to shine our light and to salt the world in the righteousness that is found in Holy Scripture. So let's just take the last election for just a moment. It came down to a choice between Donald Trump and Joseph Biden. Joseph Biden, of course, was the key instrument used in the Democratic Party to bring homosexual marriage to the forefront. Remember, it was on a Sunday morning talk show that he was questioned about his thought about homosexual marriage. And prior to um, President Obama saying anything, as his vice president, he said, oh, I'm in favor of it. He made that statement. And, of course, that for the first time uh, caused uh, President Obama to have to switch what he ran on because he ran on, if you remember, in his first election, that marriage was between a man and a woman. Um, our, our president, we have an evil president. He has uh, brought two people onto his cabinet, one who practices bestiality. He's brought someone else on his cabinet who's transgender. We have an evil president who just signed an executive order that is going to force the hands of government schools all across the nation to implement his LGBTQIA agenda. In that executive order, every department has between 80 and 200 days to come up with a full-blown agenda of how they're going to implement this. And I'll tell you, if you've read it, and I have, it's very anti-God and anti-Christian. So we had... um, Uh, Joseph Biden, who we knew before he ran, he was in favor of gay marriage. He was in favor of transgenderism. Um, He he has taught things and held things that are antithetical to the Word of God. Then we had a Donald Trump. Now, think about Donald Trump for just a moment. Uh, Are we saying that he has lived an exemplary life? Certainly not. Um, He's had a lot of moral issues himself. The question is not his personal life entirely, but what kind of policies was he, go- was he going to run on? And he ran on some policies that said, one, I want to protect life, where Joseph Biden says, I want to kill babies in the womb. We have a president who wants to kill little babies in the womb, and right now he and his administration is fighting the Supreme Court to do what they can to habitually kill babies in the womb. He's, he's an evil man, and the vice president is evil, and the Speaker of the House, who's third in line to the presidency, is evil as well. God is judging our nation with these leaders. We have gotten in many ways what we deserve. Lay that aside. We're to be salt and light. What did Trump do? Well, you know, we, we had people who said, okay, well, look at, look at Trump. He's got moral problems in his history with marriages and adultery and And then um, look at Joseph Biden. He's not much better. And so they said, don't vote. So we had the John Pipers who said, don't vote. I don't know, but maybe he swayed 10% of the evangelical population. That's what some people say. I don't know. But if he did, that's all it would have taken for him to have been elected. But what did Trump do? He appointed Supreme Court justices that overthrew Roe v. Wade. How do you think about that now, Mr. Piper? I mean, we have a president who, when he was in office in his first term, changed the complexion of the Supreme Court of the United States. And I know it comes down to the states now, state by state by state. 
but already tens of thousands of babies are going to be saved this year because Roe v. Wade is against the law of the is now protecting babies. And so that's important. Um, how about Trump in reference to Israel? Biden was anti-Israel. He's still anti-Israel and pro-Palestinian. God said he will bless the nation that blesses Israel. He will curse the nation that curses Israel. So think about that for a moment. Did Donald Trump affirm Israel? Yes, he did. He has affirmed them with military aid. He has affirmed them by saying Jerusalem is the eternal capital, which is what the Bible clearly, plainly teaches. All he did was affirm Israel as a nation. That led to our blessing as a nation. Uh, And again, you can study even American history and presidents that have gone against Israel have brought hard times in America. So um, I don't put my hope in the MAGA movement. My hope is in the living God. The question is, what is my responsibility? And my responsibility is to be salt and light. And it is a lot of foolish, blind Christians who have supported the Democratic Party that is pro-murder, pro-abortion, pro-homosexual, pro-transgenderism. It is evil to the core. And that's the sad day that we live in. So, hey, look, um, I'm not uh, electing a pastor-in-chief. I am electing a commander-in-chief. And there are some basic principles that he said he was going to do, and he did it. That's the amazing thing is he did what he said he was going to do. So think on that for a little bit. I hope that's helpful to you. Let's go to the next caller. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and we have James on line two. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. Hey, good morning, Pastor Brogy. Um, I uh, have a question about believer's baptism versus infant baptism. I know this is kind of a, an ongoing question, but I grew up in the Baptist church and in a Presbyterian church for a period of time, so it's something I've struggled with for a while to kind of reconcile my own mind. Um, I was wondering if you could help me think through um, the covenantal theology. Um, and my basic question is, you know, if, if baptism is the sign of the covenant, whereas circumcision were the sign of the covenant um, prior to the crucifixion of Christ, um, would not the Jewish people have understood baptism to have been something that was applied to their entire family, just as as uh, circumcision was something that was applied to their entire family. Um, I had this discussion with someone over the weekend, and I felt that was a fairly convincing argument for infant baptism, and I was just wondering if you could give me some pointers on how to think through that. Thanks very much. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fantastic question, and that's their best argument. So you've at least heard their best argument in terms of uh, why it is that uh, infants should be baptized. But would Jews have understood uh, this same parallel being obviously the first generation of um, adult, uh, first generation of people to be um, circumcised were adults, and then after that, infants on the eighth day? And so Protestants today who basically practice infant baptism, they reason, well, just as infants in the nation were circumcised and brought into the covenant community, so infant baptism would be the counter to that. 
Uh, and they, again, reason first generation, then infants, and so for baptism. However, there's a big difference. Baptism is the initiatory sign or symbol because that's what it is. It's a symbol um, that brings people into the Christian community, whereas circumcision initiated infants ultimately into a theocracy which had unbelievers in it. So there is a rash difference between a believing community and unbelieving community. Obviously, circumcision was only for boys and men, and so even you'd have adult proselytes, a proselyte, of course, being a Gentile who was converted to the God of Israel, whereas baptism is for both sexes. Uh, circumcision was a sign for the nation of Israel. This is a sign between you and me, God affirmed. Uh, made it very, very plain in Genesis 17. So to justify infant baptism on the basis of the old covenant practice of infant circumcision, I think is to confuse two institutions that had entirely different purposes with entirely different covenants. And so the equation, say, between uh, circumcision of male infants under the old covenant and baptism of born-again believers under the new covenant, much less infants, that's never made in the Bible. I mean, think about it for a second. God commanded, he specifically commanded them to circumcise infant boys, Genesis 17. He gave no such command ever for baptism, never. So uh, again, you step back and ask, well, what's the pattern in Scripture? In Mark 16, believe and then be baptized. About 300 years later, so for the first 300 years of church history, it's almost exclusively practices post-conversion baptism. Admittedly, there might be one possible example in 198 AD, but it's highly debatable in light of the way it's written. So 300 years go by in church history, and there are no infants baptized. How do we know? Because we have commentary written by the early church fathers. Did the early church fathers, that generation who lived closest to the apostles, ever write or affirm infant baptism? And the answer is absolutely not. So then they go to household baptisms in the book of Acts, and they say, well, obviously, there's infants that must have been present, and therefore they legitimize infant baptism. And again, in the household baptisms, to assume that there's infants who are baptized is guilty of eisegesis. Eisegesis is when you read into the text, where exegesis is you read out of the text what is plainly said. And so there are five household baptisms, and in four of them, it specifically says that everyone in the house believed who was baptized. And so to take that fifth passage and assume differently and to go against the plain command of Jesus, what's the command of Jesus in the Great Commission? Great Commission is given five different times in the New Testament. As you go or go therefore, it's a participle meaning going therefore, Uh, So it's not just a missionary verse, hey, go to Africa, go to India, go to China. He's talking to believers, as you're going, as you're going where, as you're going everywhere you're going, make disciples. And the word disciple obviously is used in different contexts. Sometimes it's used of an unbeliever who's just a learner. Uh, Sometimes it's used of someone who's growing and deepening their faith. Uh, But in its common usage, it's used of a believer. Make a believer. 
uh, of all nations. In other words, the commission is broadened and initially in Matthew's gospel. It's a limited commission. Don't go to the way of the Gentiles. Don't go to the way of the Samaritans. Just go to the Jewish people. Uh, because God is a promise-keeping God, and he's affirming that he keeps his promises to Israel. But because of their overall rejection, he broadens the commission. So for the last 400 years or so, we call it the Great Commission. Go make disciples, make converts, baptizing them, teaching them. So the order is clear. You make a disciple, you make a convert. What do you do with them? You baptize them, then you teach them. And that's the order illustrated all the way through the Acts. And so in Acts chapter 8, Philip, of course, is sharing the gospel from Isaiah 53 uh, the, with the Ethiopian eunuch. He doesn't know that the Ethiopian eunuch, as he hears the word of God, has come to faith. Philip didn't lead him in a prayer. Technically, you don't. a prayer doesn't save you. Faith in Christ does. And all a prayer is doing is it's reaching out with your heart in faith to the living Christ. And that's what the Ethiopian eunuch did. And so when he says, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Conditionally, Philip says, you can only be baptized if you've believed. And he says, well, I've done that. So the text says he stopped the chariot. He brought him down into the water. In other words, he didn't bring him to the edge of the water where he sprinkled some a handful over his head. And that's typically what our Presbyterian brothers do. They don't baptize. There's a perfectly great word in the Koine Greek, and it's used in the New Testament. It's ratizo, and it's in reference to sprinkling. That's an oxymoron to call sprinkling baptism because the word baptism itself fundamentally means to immerse or to submerge. It can't have a secondary meaning to identify, like in 1 Corinthians 10, those who are identified with Moses in the cloud, but it was used outside of the New Testament, for instance, of a fuller who dyed cloth for a living. And so I'm wearing a white shirt. If I wanted to turn it the color of my tie green, I would take this white shirt and I would immerse it into green dye. I would put it under. And that's really what baptism means to submerge. So number one, they're not even baptizing, though they call it baptism. It's an oxymoron to call sprinkling baptism. Now, I will say there are a few places in the world where they do take infants and they literally baptize them. There's some Orthodox people who don't even have the gospel anymore, and they take an infant and they baptize them actually three times in the name of the Father, quickly under and up, and the Son, quickly under and up, and the Spirit, quickly under and up. Though I had a man in a class I was teaching, he was from Mexico years ago, and he said his little nephew ended up dying from an infant baptism, ingested water, sadly, and infant baptism is made up. It's created. And of course, uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, which starts in the 6th century, around 575 A.D., they instill a new meaning to it. And again, infant baptism largely starts in the 4th century because the infant mortality rate was so high. Uh, And so they wanted to make sure their, quote-unquote, children were covered. And they created these false dichotomies. And you can understand part of it in that they didn't have the Scriptures in their language. It was in the language of the scholar, and so they were limited. And so a lot of traditions developed that weren't necessarily biblical. But the Roman Catholics infused new meaning to it, 
And they said, as you memorize in the Baltimore Catechism, if you're a Roman Catholic and brought up in the 60s and 70s, that baptism is a sacrament that washes away original sin and instills salvation to the soul. And so you have these Protestants like Calvin who are coming out of Catholicism and Luther, and they put a different spin on it. They retain infant baptism, but even what they retained about infant baptism was grossly in error. Is baptism something that gives, um, you know, pre-salvation grace as Luther and Calvin taught? Absolutely not. That's just ridiculous. But that's one of the ways that they dealt with the depravity of man. And man is depraved and dead in sin. And so they said he needed provenient grace and it was administered through infant baptism. But again, typically, again, when you have a group refer to it as a sacrament, versus an ordinance, then they're instilling meaning into it. They're saying that somehow, just beyond a symbol, this um, procedure is bringing about uh, some form of uh, pre-salvation grace. So it's just, it's just wrong. It's just wrong. And let me just say, I've been to some parts of the world, China, um, where I've met you know, dozens and dozens of pastors in Eastern Europe and other places where Eastern Europe, you know, they didn't have seminaries for 70 years. Even Bibles were limited. Uh, and the evangelicals there say, you know, how do these Americans come up with infant baptism? Just the plain, simple reading of Scripture. Believe and then be baptized. Make disciples, baptizing them. And so one of the first acts of obedience is to be baptized. There's a lot of other ramifications in error that comes from infant baptism. Now, I have a 33-page handout. So if this caller wants to uh, go to searchthescriptures.org, or they can call back after we leave the air. But if you go to searchthescriptures.org, ask Dr. Brogy a question, hit the drop-down menu, um, and say, I would like the handout. I will send you my 32-page handout on baptism, and I go through all of the logistics in great detail. Good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and uh, getting back to that first question that we almost started, a listener from Georgia says he've got they've got a relative who is asking them, how is predestination fair to the people who are not predestined to be children of God? And how is it free will if there is predestination? Well, again, um, you know, it depends what camp you're coming out of. And, you know, we speak of predestination and we speak of election. And technically, those are two different words with two different meanings. Um, All evangelicals believe in election. All evangelicals believe in predestination the question is, how do you define those words and what's the implications behind them? Technically, predestination, you are predestined to do what? To become conformed to the image of God's Son. And so once the salvation process has started, technically, predestination is looking at the end, that what God began, he's going to continue. We call that process after justification in a broad sense sanctification, though there are actually three tenses to sanctification in the New Testament, and then that future aspect that will lead to a glorification. So in one sense, um, many Calvinists, when they use the term predestination, they're not talking about 
God choosing some people in eternity past, but God, once you are saved, continuing that process to make you like Christ. And it is an unbroken process that once you're born again, you can't be unborn again. You are eternally secure in the work God began, he will complete. Now, again, in popular terms today, when people ask the question about predestination, they're using it biblically in terms of the doctrine of election. Uh, That is, um, God chose some to go to heaven. God chose some and created some to go to hell. There's singular election or predestination and double election. But again, the doctrine of election is a biblical doctrine. That is that God before the foundation of the world, determined who would be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. How do I know that? Because three times over in the Revelation, it's affirmed that there are names written in God's book that represent all those who would be saved. And so sometimes, you know, there used to be a popular hymn, there's a new name written down in glory when someone got saved. Well, actually not. Maybe a check mark put next to the name when it was realized in time and space. So the question is not, does God elect the question? Because it says we were chosen, and it's the Greek verb that we also get the noun electos from, and so the word election. Um, God elected us before the foundation of the world. The question is not, does God elect? The question in the point of debate is, how does God elect? And so I take it that it's based on God's foreknowledge. And again, it comes down to definition. What do you mean by foreknowledge? How do you define the word foreknowledge? And again, this is important. And so, for instance, we're told um, in 1 Peter 1, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. Again, it's, it's this word for election or elected. How? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So the word foreknowledge is the word, um, here it's a verb, progoes, um, and when it's in noun form, um, it's simply prognosco. So pro gives us our word pre, uh, gnosis, prognosis, the verb um, gnosko, the noun, means knowledge. And so we speak of Gnostics, right, in English. And so with that said, uh, it's based on God's prior knowledge. God in eternity past could look down the corridors of time, see who would be a Christian and who wouldn't based on his work in his life. Now, look, we can't take any credit. It begins with God. If a person is dead in trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2 affirms, and many other passages, Paul strings together a whole number of texts in Romans 3, concluding there is none righteous, not one, no one who seeks God. Then the initiative must begin with God. So does he initiate just with some or all? Um, Again, are there other illustrations of this word prognosco? Uh, it's used another a number of times. So, for instance, I'll give you one example because we got callers waiting. In Acts 26, so then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time. That is, they had knowledge beforehand. They had before knowledge about me. 
And that's how the word is simply used. And so to read into it, God lovingly choosing some to go to heaven and others to be damned is, I think, to abuse the general use of the word in Koine Greek and really to go against the spirit of the New Testament. But um, it's a fair question. I would suggest you listen to Romans 9, 10, and 11. So do we have a free will? Yes. Is our free will predisposed to God's grace? Yes. The initiative begins with him. So it's not like I can say, well, I read Josh McDowell's books, Evidences That Demand a Verdict, and Volumes 1 and 2, and I did this, and I did that, and I studied apologetics, and I came. No, the initiative began with God Almighty. And if you had any desire to do that, it was only because God first initiated with you. So listen to my series on Romans 9, 10, and 11. Out of the book of Romans, you can go to search the scriptures, all one word at the app store, download it. It's easy to spot. It's a triangular blue shape, and download that and type in Romans, and you can listen to about, I don't know, 12 or 13 messages there. All right, very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And we have another James on line one. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I had a question from Genesis, and it has to do with uh, this, the definition in giving in Strong's exhaustive concordance, and it has to do with the Nephilim. When I looked up that word Nephil, uh, that they identified as the one that was uh, used for Nephilim, it didn't say fallen. It said it was causative, and it was a feller someone who causes others to be to fall and i noticed there's probably four or five variations of nephil and there was another one nolfil that uh designated fallen um and the 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 question i have is the way the strongs is set up uh, it lists what the Hebrew actually says and then gives a bunch of other information. And then at the very end of it, in italics, it says, has been interpreted as. And in this case, it says, has been interpreted as fallen instead of what the Hebrew says, which is a feller, one that causes others. Can you give uh, me some light on this definition? Well, again, if you use Strong's Concordance, and Augustus Strong was an interesting man. Uh, Some would consider him to be a liberal theologian. Uh, Nonetheless, he did a lot of work. There there are works that are done by liberals that evangelicals use all the time. Bauer uh, Bag, as it's called, Bauer Art in Gingrich is kind of the classical Greek lexicon or, or a dictionary. Um, that is done on a scholarly level that looks at words contextually and historically. And so, for instance, even the word save in Hebrew, in its early usage, it was in reference to, you know, God delivering people from trouble. But remember, the Old Testament is written from approximately 1,400 years before Christ to 400 years before Christ. And over the course of the centuries, the word... Uh, could take on different nuances. And the same is true in English. When I was a a boy, I memorized the Boy Scout pledge. I promised to be morally pure. 
the old, old pledge that my grandfather and father would have memorized is I promised to be square. Well, the word square took on a different nuance in the 60s to call someone square was to, you know, they're a little bit weird or odd or whatever. And, um, but it, and you could see maybe where it went that way, but it carried initially the idea of being morally pure. And of course, all the strong concordance is doing is it's giving you the um, scant definition, but it's not always looking at it contextually. And so words can mean different things in a different context. Last Sunday, we were speaking about parousia, and sometimes we speak of the parousia of Jesus, his coming, uh, the great hope of the believer that he is coming back. And typically, the Greek word is used in reference to a dignitary like a king or a governor, but it can also be used, parousia, like the coming of, a, of, of Titus to comfort us in our depression. Paul uses it that way. So in Genesis 6, number one, it's not a verb, it's a noun. The Nephilim, or Nephilim if you prefer, were on the earth in those days. So it is a noun, and the um, uh, authorized version, the AV, King James Version, renders it giant three times. It refers to large people. And so even after the great flood, when the Nephilim that were wiped out um, their descendants in the great flood, because obviously only eight came through the flood, yet there's still Nephilim or Nephilim on the earth later on that you read about in the book of Numbers. It's just large people. So again, the verb versus the noun. And again, what all you're getting is the scant meaning uh, the very, I, I would just caution people, you know, oh, this is what Strong says. That may be a general meaning, and sometimes there's what we call a hapax legomena. Hapax means once legomena, a word that appears just once. And so there are some words like that in the Bible. Okay, it has one meaning, period. But even in English, when I use the word trunk, do I mean what's in front of an elephant, what's behind my car? What's at the base of a tree? What's over a sailor's shoulder? All depends on context. And that's true with many Greek and Hebrew words. And not just context, but also the time frame in human history in which it is used. And that's especially true in Hebrew because the time frame is written over hundreds and hundreds of years and words took on different nuance. And that's where something like Bauer, Art, and Gangrich which would be, and it's a little challenging to read, I get it, though they do make, um, I think, a more user-friendly one uh, for people who don't read Greek or Hebrew, but still you're you're getting at least a more honest approach uh, than maybe what you would get to Strong's Concordance. Good question. Let's go to the next one. We could spend a lot more time on that. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and we've got another caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Luke. Hi, this is Javon. Uh, I don't have to call. Hey, Javon. Uh, nice I, to hear you. You up in I New York today? Oh, we lost Javon. Yep, yep. Actually, I think we've got Javon. Let me just hold on. I, it's the other one that we've got. Hold on, Javon. Okay. We... He, he hung up. So call us back, Javon. We'll try. So, um... I might also suggest to uh, James that just called uh, called TWOT, Theological Workbook of the Old Testament. That might be helpful to you as well. In fact, that that might be even more helpful because it's keyed 
to Strong. So you'll get like a Strong's number, um, you know, 5303, and then you have your index for TWOT. You can go to the index. Oh, that's in this volume and on page such and such, and that's how it's used in this context. Anyway, let's go to back to Giovanna. Okay, sorry about that, Giovanna. I had the other line, and it was uh, beeping, but you're on the air now. Oh, hey. Okay, uh, so yesterday I met this uh, <clears throat> um, a, a, a Catholic priest, and uh, we were walking down the street, and uh, he started to share his faith with me, and I was sharing mine. And I told him how you came out of the, the Catholic Church. And um, we got into intercession, and he was saying how um, how the saints uh, make intercession between men, uh, between man and God. And I was giving him a scripture about how, uh, you know, Christ is the only mediator. But I wasn't able to really, really get through to him. And I was just wondering if there's any any help or advice you could give and that you could pray that we could actually meet again because he didn't have any social media. Yeah, uh, a, a couple things, uh, Javon. Uh, you're you're good, you're really wise in you know quoting what Paul said to Timothy. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator, not multiple mediators. And of course, in Roman Catholic theology, they get around that in one of two ways. They'll say, "Well, Javon, have you ever asked a friend to pray for you?" Of course. Well, that's all you're doing when you pray to the saints. You're asking for Saint Teresa or Saint you know whoever it is, Joseph and to pray for you. And of course they have all this, these saints who are even categorized into specialties. And so, you know, Joseph would sit on the dashboard of a Roman Catholic vehicle in the 1960s, especially when uh, this was really pushed. And as a reminder, you're going on a trip, pray to St. Joseph, you know, and he'll go to Jesus. And, and then they speak of, well, yeah, Mary, of course we pray to Mary. Well, she's not a mediator. She's a mediatrix. And, you know, so you, you go to Jesus' mother and you ask her. And this is just sheer, utter heresy. It's nonsense. It's a form of idolatry. It's wicked. So for you to really be, I think, sharp on this, because it is an armchair question, and I could spend the next 30 minutes on it, but this is what I want to encourage you to get. It's a book by a man by the name of Lorraine Bettner. Lorraine Bettner. And Lorraine Bettner wrote a book in the um, 1960s that was so well done, it is still in print. It is still in print. And so when a book typically makes more than one printing, it's worthy um, there are like 30,000 books that are printed. At least this was pre-COVID. I don't know how much it's changed prior to um, COVID, but 30,000 books a year were printed every year in evangelical presses, and only 1% of those books made a second reprint. He wrote a book that was done in the 1960s. It's entitled Roman Catholicism by Lorraine Bettner, B-O-E-T-T-N-E-R. And if you type it into the internet, you you will find used copies for five or six dollars plus printing. You can buy it new for like forty dollars, but you can buy it cheap, and you'll probably find one that's in perfect condition. Uh, he, he lived till about the age of ninety, and he was a great theologian. Um, and one of the things that he did well in doing analysis of Roman Catholicism is he didn't create straw men, as many people do but actually went to the documents that are 
um, approved by the Roman Catholic Church, the magisterium, and said, well, this is what they say. So you're reading exactly what they say. And then he will go to various biblical texts and say, but this is what the Bible says. This is what Scripture says. And so here's the big thing, though, with this Roman Catholic priest that you've intersected with. I would start with the gospel if you have an opportunity. One, I, I remember God providentially, um, the flight was delayed, got another flight, another airline. I sat down um, in my seat, and who sat down next to me? A Roman Catholic priest. And I asked him the diagnostic questions. He told me no one could be sure. He said, it's pride to say you know you're sure. I asked him, well, what do you think God's entrance requirements are to get into heaven? And he didn't deny that Jesus died and was raised again. But again, in Roman Catholic theology, they just say that's not enough. And so he said, you need to participate in the sacraments that will give you grace, that will help you to do good works. And... Hopefully, if you will do enough, your time in purgatory will be limited before you go to heaven. And so I just walked through this simple plan of salvation with him. And by the time I was done, there was tears in his eyes, and he bowed his head, and he received Jesus as his Savior. One other kind of dramatic experience like that, I was on a ski lift uh, going up the mountain in Killington, Vermont. And, of course, about two minutes into the ski lift, the thing stopped, and it was stopped for about 20 minutes and enough time for me to share the gospel for what would have been typically a four-minute ride up to the top of the mountain. And this guy was a Roman Catholic monk, and so he, you know, cloistered himself, but I guess he was on vacation and was breaking loose and shared the gospel with him, and he received Christ as his personal Savior. Get to the gospel. Here's the thing is you could believe wrong on praying to the saints and still go to heaven. You could believe wrong on the real presence of the Lord's table, thinking that it literally turns into the body of blood of Christ. You could believe that and still go to heaven. You could believe the Pope is God's man on the earth, but you cannot, you cannot be wrong on how God declares righteous a person. And God does it on the basis of grace alone through faith alone. In the Roman Catholic Church's uh, refutation to Martin Luther's 95 assertions or theses was the Council of Trent that met from 1541 to, I think, 1568. It wasn't just like one weekend. It met several times over the course of a few decades, and they came up with a document called the Council of Trent, which, by the way, was reaffirmed at Vatican I, Vatican II, and in 2010 at the College of Cardinals. It denies justification by grace alone through faith alone. Look, um, Roman Catholics say that what Jesus did was not enough. So it's human merit on top of the finished work of Christ. God gave his son because there's no other way to get to heaven. And when Jesus shouted to Telestai, it's finished, paraphrased, paid in full, he meant what he said When God said to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies or declares righteous the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteous. God doesn't save people who work for it. He saves for people who admit they are bankrupt, that they can do nothing to contribute to their salvation. And either God saves you by his grace alone, he saves you all by himself without any help from you, or he doesn't save you at all. So if you can get him right on that, because you might win the battle— on who to pray to, but he's still lost. 
get to the core doctrine of the gospel and start there. You might even use the Catholic Living Bible. So the, the, the Living Bible was done in the early 1970s, and it's kind of a paraphrased version. And uh, the Roman Catholic Church actually put their imprimatur on the Catholic Living Bible. That's the outside uh, print. And so it's recognized as a Bible that Roman Catholics can read. Now, they have the apocryphal books that the author didn't believe in, but he put it in there hoping that, you know, maybe they would read it. Get the Catholic Living Bible. Again, you can find it online, used probably for a couple bucks plus shipping. And read to him Romans 3.19 to Romans 4 in verse 5 and ask him what he thinks. Good question. Let's Thanks, Javon, for calling from New York City. Let's go to the next caller. All right. Well, speaking of the Apocrypha and the Catholic Bible, uh, a friend of a caller says there are more than 66 books in the Bible. Are there more? Would you please shed some light on the subject? Well, uh, no, there are just 66 books. Now, if you have the Roman Catholic Bible, they have some more, and the Orthodox Bible have even a few more than they have. So it becomes an issue of canonicity. Uh, Why do we have the books that we have? Why don't we have additional books? And there are several reasons, and so I would direct you to a course I have. It's called Bibliology, and it's not for the faint of heart, but you don't have to work through all 500 pages of notes. There's a section on the canonization of Scripture, and I walk through evidences on why we believe in only 66 books. Well, what did Jesus believe? He believed in just 66 books. So when he summarized the Scripture, he summarized it from Genesis to Malachi, what he called the Psalms and the Prophets. Um, That was it. Uh, Or the, the law, the Psalms and the Prophets, like in Luke 24, that was it. He didn't refer to any of the books written between the Testaments. And by the way, the Roman Catholics very craftily have taken some of these intertestament books, which I'm not against them uh, in terms of their historical importance, but in terms of their inspiration, absolutely, they're not inspired by God. But they do shed some light on that time frame between the last writer of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the first writer of the New Testament, Matthew. Um, what happened during that 400-year period. So they do shed some historical light. And by the way, in the initial edition of the 1611 translation of the Bible, they put the apocryphal books in between the two testaments. And in the preface, they said, we don't believe these are inspired, but they're helpful in setting the historical background for the New Testament. Well, the Roman Catholics said, well, look, they, they have them there because they believe they're of great worth. We just think they're worth more than they do. And so in the 1613 edition of the King James, they removed them. They're not inspired. They don't pass the tests of canonicity. And so one of a test of canonicity is what did the New Testament writers sing about them? They don't quote the Apocrypha. Well, they say Jude quoted Enoch. No, he didn't. He quoted the Assumption of Moses. No, he didn't. He was just quoting some a historical tradition um, that became part of Holy Scripture that God put his stamp of approval on. And so you don't read in the Old Testament about a fight over Moses' body between Michael the archangel and the devil. That's not in the Old Testament. But obviously there was some kind of dispute that the Jews spoke about 
and were aware of, and it was a tradition, but God put his divine imprimatur on it, that that tradition was absolutely trustworthy that you can believe it. And so it is with, um, you know, there's no quotations though, directly from these books. Why? Because they didn't believe it. Paul didn't say, let me tell you what Second Maccabees say. Why would Paul want to quote Second Maccabees, which contradicts what he wrote in Second Corinthians 5? Second Maccabees preaches that you should pray for the dead. Well, that's good doctrine if you don't believe at the moment of death a person's eternal destiny is settled. He's in Hades, either righteous Hades or unrighteous Hades at that point. Today, he's either absent from the body and present with the Lord, or he's still in unrighteous Hades, but the eternal destiny is set. So it contradicts. So the Roman Catholic Church has a day, November 1st, every year, All Saints Day, where you pray for the dead. We don't pray for the dead to get their souls out of purgatory. Why not? For this simple reason, there's no such thing as purgatory. That's a man-made, manipulated doctrine built on some inferences, not even clear statements from the apocryphal books. So again, that's a real short answer. Go to searchthescriptures.org, download the course on bibliology, listen to the section on the canonization of Scripture. How do we get the canon that we have today? And so I say the Roman Catholic Church never finished his thought to have craftily even taken some of those books, and instead of putting between the Testaments, they, they sprinkle them through the Old Testament. And so like in a Roman Catholic Bible, there's 14 chapters to the book of Daniel, where there's only 12 in all of the Jewish manuscripts, and only 12 in your English Bible, but they create a 13th and 14th chapter with apocryphal books that are just not true. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right. Well, uh, this last question, I think, goes back to our first question, Um, and somebody was calling in relation to that. They would like to know what you think about Romans 13, about submitting to authority. Particularly, was there disregard for that command in saying that there was voter fraud and denying Biden as the president when the government said he was elected and not Trump? Well, you know, everyone wants an honest and fair election. You know, you can't get a passport without showing proper ID that you exist, that you're a real person. You usually have to produce two forms of identification, like a driver's license and a birth certificate. And So, look, there is no question that there's been voter fraud in our nation. The point of debate is how widespread is it? And have people been able to electronically manipulate the votes? That's the issue at hand. I think the whole idea that, you know, you should prove that you are who you are with voter ID, I think that's a reasonable request. You cannot get on an airplane without proving that you are who you are. And so to say this is some racially motivated thing, that's just nonsense. That That's just sheer unmitigated nonsense. And so I think we ought to be able to prove that we are who we are when we go into that voting booth so that there are not falsities that take place. And certainly there was some abuse that was done and done under the guise of COVID where, you know, there were these ballots that were mailed to people's homes and it's highly questionable, maybe some of the legitimacy of the vote. 
do I think that the election was stolen? From what I read, my answer would be no. I don't think it was stolen. Uh, I really don't. And do I think there were votes that were illegitimate? There have been in every election. Were there enough illegitimate votes in order to uh, change the election? I, I don't think so. Not from what I read. And not from what even credible people in the Trump administration themselves affirmed. With that said, do I think it was wrong for people to question the legitimacy of the vote? Of course not. That's part of our American responsibility. Everyone wants a fair election. And some people think that there's going to be some, maybe it's conspiracy deal that's going to happen before the November election because it doesn't look real good for the Democrats because people typically don't vote their morality, though evangelicals should, uh, but they vote first and foremost their pocketbooks, and so they don't think it looks good, and they think, well, they're going to use monkeypox. I don't know. You know, who knows? Well, there's all kinds of conspiracies that are unfolding as to what's going to happen come November. But I do think it's our responsibility and it's our right, constitutionally speaking, uh, to make sure elections are honest and fair. So there's nothing wrong with that. Do I think people were right to break windows and smash into the that sacred institution? Of course they were not. Do I think Trump instigated that? I don't. I don't personally think he instigated that from everything that I read. And from his own words, in terms of what he said, do I think uh, the Democrats want to obliterate Trump? That's why they've had the January 6th hearings, and they're one-sided. Is there any opportunity for cross-examination or anything else? Of course not. It's very one-sided. And that's not what we would typically say is representative government. But do they want to get rid of Trump? They're scared to death of him. That's why they broke into his house last night. That's why they did what they did last night, uh, because they don't like him and they fear that if he uh, has a legitimate right to run for office, they're going to be in deep trouble. Anyway, these are important days in which we live, and I hope you'll think through what God's Word says as it relates to every aspect of life. Thanks for being with us today on The Bible Line. Don't forget the concert. Yes, Sunday night. We are celebrating 40 years as a church at 530. We're going to have a magnificent meal all catered, though we do ask people, they don't have to, to bring their favorite dessert. And then a Christian concert with the Ball Brothers, and that will be at 7 o'clock. First class, rated group, wherever you may be, come and join us for dinner. If you can't make it for dinner, come at 7 o'clock. We will start at 7 o'clock sharp, end at 815 Great family event. You don't want to miss it. More details can be found at communitybiblechurch.us. Have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ.